Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll okay. never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try and tell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Well, your parents are arms too? The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue. Congratulations. That really turned out well. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Hey, good morning out there. Welcome everybody to the Savvy Entrepreneur. We are broadcasting live here on WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I'm your host, Doris Nagel, and I'm an entrepreneur and I love helping other entrepreneurs, which is why I'm here. I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses as part of my law and advisory services practice over the past 30 years, and I've also started or helped start at least nine different businesses, and whoo boy have I made lots of mistakes. My passion is to share what I've learned and help find other people who also want to share their passion and their advice and their insights. As always, I welcome your comments, your questions, any challenges you have, topics you'd like to hear about, if you want to be a guest or know somebody who'd like to be a guest or just want to call and reach out and shoot the breeze, I would love to hear from you. You can reach me at dnagel, D-N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. Believe me, the show will be better for your input. I'd love to hear from you. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today. We'll be talking about a model of something that's kind of like an accelerator. It's called an activator, and our guest is going to explain exactly what the difference is of that. And with us live in our studio to talk about that today is Tom Dennison. He's the brains and the arms and the legs behind something called Smart Health Activator. He describes Smart Health Activator as a catalyst for life science innovation. It builds biotech startups by licensing groundbreaking biotechnology that's being developed at Midwest universities and then matching them with a startup team comprised of experienced bio-entrepreneurs and other experts. Tom describes himself as someone with a passion for mentoring, advising, and funding tech and biotech startups. He's engaged with 200-plus startups at all stages, from concept to exit, and prior to founding Smart Health, he played a critical business development role in the success of three tech startups. And so, Tom, thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. I have to say, Tom, that I've looked at your bio on LinkedIn, and I, the bio you sent me is extremely modest. You have done a lot of different things in your career and accomplished a lot of different things, including a variety of entrepreneurial roles, which I'm sure you'll talk about. So let's first talk about what is the Smart Health Activator? So I think it's probably best to start with the problem that we're solving. So the problem that we're solving is that There are any number of brilliant scientists at Midwest universities that are developing what we believe to be life-saving, life-changing biotechnology. 
But the problem is, is that the scientist, and, and not to take away from their scientific brilliance, they're just not necessarily equipped to uh, spin out their research into a viable startup company and ultimately get to patients. So that's the problem that we're trying to solve. So in essence, and I, I think you mentioned it, but we look for what we believe to be very promising biotechnology being developed at any one of 35 universities that we've identified in the Midwest. And if we discover something, essentially what we do is we license that technology into a company that we create. And then that company, we put in place the right CEO, the right CSO, chief scientific officer, the right board, and anybody else who can pitch in and advise, um, and really with the intent of getting that newly created startup from its inception all the way through to Series A funding. And in biotech, that's a very important inflection point. You may or may not know, I'm sure you do, but maybe our audience doesn't, but in biotech, that sort of bridging of the valley of death can be very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about that, yeah. I'm sure, in more detail as we go along. Your model as an activator is really taking the idea, someone has an idea, and you help them create the infrastructure around it, which is, I think, somewhat different than most accelerators where a lot of times, at least my understanding is, entrepreneurs will come to an accelerator they have a company, maybe they have some basic foundation building blocks in place and they need help getting to the next step or getting that's right. Getting traction maybe. Is that is that a fair that's distinction? Right. That's right. And so the difference is this is that your sort of classic accelerator is looking for startups. So they're looking for entrepreneurs who have created an entity and they're trying to solve a particular problem. And yeah, you're exactly right. They're, they're trying to help that entrepreneur with challenges they might not be equipped to face. Whereas in biotech, and again, this goes back to the problem that we're trying to solve, is that most of innovation in biotechnology comes out of universities. Well, that's interesting. Why is that? You'd almost think it could be scientists working at Abbott or physicians or people at cancer research institutes or whatever. And those folks certainly do innovate, but the vast majority does come out of universities. And the reason is this. You're probably familiar with the National Institute of Health, a very large uh, organization, federally funded. And basically what they do and what professors and students try to do at uh, universities is they look for grants from the NIH to fund their research. Oh. And that's really where the discovery innovation begins. Interesting. And, and I will say this. Historically, there, there could have been any number of biotech companies or, or what we call big pharma that might have innovated in the past, but more and more we're seeing big biotech companies, big pharma, look to universities for what they are developing. That's interesting because 
I'm from a little bit from more familiar maybe with the engineering side and other parts of STEM research at universities. There are a lot of tech companies, for example, that spend a ton of money providing internships and laboratory equipment and grants of all sorts to universities to help them. Does that does that not happen also in the biotech world or you might say Merck or Lilly or I don't know, name any of the other big bio companies would provide grants and money to the university. Oh, they absolutely do. It's sponsored research. So I'd say that the the biggest difference is this, is that universities certainly are spending a lot of time and money and effort around entrepreneurship these days, which is great. But the reality is this, is that, well, I like to use the analogy in the tech startup world. We call it the, the classic tech startup is made up of a hacker and a hustler. (laughs) <laughs> okay, you got to elaborate on that. So, yeah. So the hacker is the programmer. It's the developer. It's the engineer. The hustler is the person who's going out and trying to sell whatever it is or trying to raise money, sort of the, the face of the startup. A simple analogy I'm sure everybody can appreciate is it's sort of the Steve Wozniak and the Steve Jobs. Oh. So Steve Wozniak clearly was the hacker. And Steve Jobs was clearly the hustler. Well, it's it's interesting you say that, though, because in my experience, a lot of tech companies are mostly hackers and not too many hustlers, and that's kind of a, a, a problem for yeah, a lot it, of I mean, it, it can be. And that's, and that's exactly the situation in life sciences and biotech is that, generally speaking, you've got professors and students who are looking to get grant funding to basically perform research trying to validate a hypothesis of some sort. And the problem with that is that you've got all of these brilliant hackers, but you don't necessarily have the hustler. That's not their expertise. It's really not. And And again, it goes back to the problem that we're trying to solve. It's really an appreciation for what is the scientist good at and what is the lane that they need to stay in compared to who are the folks that can move that research out of a university lab and into the real world, folks that have expertise, operational expertise, uh, regulatory expertise. Right, right. um, Fundraising, legal. legal. Human resources, right? It's very, very complex. And so... The idea is let's keep the scientists doing what they do best. They innovate. They come up with the potentially the next life-saving, life-changing new drug, you know, new device, new diagnostic. But let's help them take that innovation out of the university and set it down on a path towards commercialization, which ultimately means getting to patients. That is a very interesting business model and I think quite unique, although I can see there are no doubt a number of challenges with it, not the least of which is, in my experience, a lot of inventors take a very personal interest in their baby and also are often quite excited by the idea of 
somehow taking this wonderful unicorn and leading it to the promised land and maybe being on the cover of Fortune magazine and becoming the next Steve Jobs. And oftentimes it's a role they are not well suited for. That's right. But that, I'm sure, is a, sometimes a difficult conversation. It is a very difficult conversation, and it's something that we have very, very early. The question is very simple. Ask the inventor, the innovator, are you open to having others start up a company around your research, around your intellectual property? Well, they'll all probably say yes, but... But do with, they really with, mean it? So that's you right. have to ask some more questions. Yeah, with, sure. the one, with the one caveat that you do not have operational control. And that is a tough conversation to have. But I will tell you that it seems to me, and I, I, I don't know if it's sort of being pushed along by the university, that if you are looking to be successful the likelihood of success dramatically increases if you put your innovation in the hands of people who have been there and done it before. It's interesting because, as you mentioned, a lot of universities are putting emphasis on entrepreneurship. So I'm, I'm imagining in some cases it's a difficult conversation with maybe the university itself because wouldn't a lot of them like to see these ideas get funneled into their various programs so they can take credit for the success? Absolutely. I, I can tell you, though, our experience in we're now working with uh, over 20 universities in the Midwest, and without exception, when we connect with, it's called tech transfer at universities, and those are the folks that basically manage IP, intellectual property, at a university. Once we connect with them and we share what it is we actually do, my experience has been they roll out the red carpet. Dang. They're very wow. excited about that, and here's why. The university owns the intellectual property. Wow, that was going to be my next question is, is who does it belong to? The researcher, the NIH, the university, what? It belongs to the university. And so what happens then, and this is the role of tech transfer, is that they license the technology to, could be an entity that we create, mm -hmm. it could be to Abbott, could be to another third party, but within that license agreement are built in rewards. Royalty payments. Royalties for the university and, uh, and also the innovator. So really, if you think about it in terms of increasing the likelihood of success which ultimately means if it is successful, there is a financial reward for the university. There's a financial reward for the inventor, but there's also recognition that's tied to that success, which means that the university will attract higher profile professors and students. The university will attract more research dollars. So it's really, it's the proverbial win, win, win. Well, and I suppose if it hits big, it can be a real moneymaker. And I'm just thinking of one example. My graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison was paid for with a what's called a WARF fellowship, W-A-R-F, and it 
the money came from the, the commercialization of warfarin, which was a blood thinner that was uh, extremely lucrative and a big breakthrough at the time. And it paid for this entire foundation that gave me fellowships and lots of other lucky students. That's right, and, and that's not unique. Another local example at Northwestern, the drug Lyrica, was developed at Northwestern, and they've received hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of that. And then even more high-profile startups, folks might not realize that Google came out of Stanford. I did not know that. And so originally, Stanford owned the intellectual property for the search engine. Oh, so even a few, uh, even a few shekels of slice of royalty off of that is worth a lot of money. That's right. And so in those three examples, what that then does, not only does it create revenue, and in the case of Wisconsin, they can create wharf. Mm -hmm. In the case of Northwestern, they can build a new building. But in all three cases, it's attracting higher-profile professors. It's attracting students. You know, who wouldn't want to go to the university where Google was created? Right, so right. Well, and it, yeah. it allowed, I know at Wisconsin, it allowed not only the fellowships for students who might be talented prospective researchers themselves, but also chairs and endowments for faculty members to, as you say, attract those, those top talents. That's right. So how did you decide to start Smart Health Activator? What's the story behind that? Well... It's interesting, I think. I call it partly midlife crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Partly trying to do something a little bit bigger, a little bit bolder, and something that would have a bigger impact locally and globally. But it was really kind of a serendipitous discovery of this problem. In, In a very odd story that I'll share and how all this came about is um, I was invited to a pitch event. And at this pitch event, there was this couple. They were pitching something called the Hero Project. The Hero Project was really crowdfunding for new homes or rehabbed homes for families that needed it and deserved it. But it was focused on the city of North Chicago. And the reason why that was incredibly inspirational for me, what I didn't know and what I didn't understand and what I didn't appreciate is that the city of North Chicago suffers socioeconomically, but it's surrounded by tremendous wealth. And so when I started to dig in to the city of North Chicago, there are a number of things that I discovered. Number one, North Chicago is home to very large pharma companies. I think Abbott is based there, right? Abbott is in North Chicago. AbbVie is in North Chicago. Hospira, which is now owned by Pfizer, is in North Chicago. You also have Great Lakes Naval Station, which is where every Navy recruit... And maybe Cardinal Health, too, for that yes, matter. Yes, that's right. And then also a small medical school called Rosalind Franklin University. So as I dug in and thought about the odd juxtaposition of these very large institutions in a city that suffers socioeconomically. And that just didn't make sense to me. So I got to know all the various institutions in North Chicago, and in particular, Rosalind Franklin University. And after meeting with the president and the head of R&D at Rosalind Franklin, they asked me to meet with seven or eight of their scientists. 
And I thought, cool, let's do it. So we spent a couple of days meeting with those scientists. And what was clear to me is that, first of all, there were a couple of those scientists that are working on something, some things that I believe can be truly life-saving and life-changing. But the second thing, and the sad reality is, is that if we don't help them, there's no way that research will ever see the light of day. Yeah, it's pretty tough to overcome some of the hurdles. I have past clients and prospective clients that I'm always talking to and colleagues and friends. It's a, it's a tough road to hoe because it's not only just about having a cool idea, right? I mean, you have to have a cool idea and it actually has to work, unlike companies that are infamous in the news like Theranos, for example, where it was a neat idea, but unfortunately that the technology didn't work, which is a kind of a fundamental problem. But even if it does work, it's extremely expensive and time-consuming to do the research and the clinical trials and the regulatory hurdles that are involved. Talk a little bit about some of those obstacles that, that these little startup ideas face. Yeah, I mean, the obstacles are tremendous. But I, I, I do want to mention one thing, and this is, this is really the challenge for any startup, biotech, tech, or otherwise. This leads to my answer. Regardless of what area you're in, there's always two assumptions that you need to validate in some way. And the first you had mentioned is that whatever you're developing, whatever solution it is, it has to solve a real problem. That's assumption number one that you need to validate. The second one is, will somebody pay for it? So you have to validate that in some way. And I, I mention that because if you think about the scientist, the professor at a university who in their lab conducting research, trying to figure out how do I validate my hypothesis that this compound will cure this particular disease. Right. Are these gene markers actually are a good predictor of breast cancer or something like that? That's right. And there are the scientific method. You're going to start with a hypothesis. Then you're going to get to eventually, you know, maybe mouse studies and so on. But all of those things, all of those activities are very, very expensive. But that's where grant funding can come into play. The challenge is, even if you continue to validate that that particular solution solves a problem using the scientific method, you haven't yet validated, will somebody pay for that? Even backing up, how far along in the research process does an idea have to be before it's a good fit for you? Because there's... there's I'm not a researcher. I am what what you know what I know you could put in a a, a very small coffee cup, a very you know a little demi tasse <laughs> that's half quarterful. But I think there's probably different kinds of research. So there's very basic research and then there's more applied research and an idea has to get fairly far along before it actually results in something that can become a product that's useful, right? That's right. So on that whole spectrum, what are, what are you looking for? 
That's a very good question. So we're looking for generally like four or five characteristics or criteria. Number one, has the scientist raised quite a bit of money through grant funding to spend validating their research? So it's sort of a monetary validation, meaning that they have gone through the grant writing process. They have to prove to the NIH that whatever they're doing is worthwhile. And so then the NIH will write, in some cases, very, very large grants into the tens of millions of dollars, typically smaller than that. But in any case, so that's one criterion. A second criterion is that there is actual intellectual property that's been established. So is Mm. this something that, if it were to become commercialized, is this something that is unique? Is it a unique product? Is it a unique solution? In other words, is it patentable? That's right. So do you look for technologies that already have a patent, or do you help them get the patent? Both. Okay. Um, So preferred if they already have a patent and preferably a good one and a good one and of course um, on our team we have experts in patent law and and patent protection but if they have let's say patent pending what we will do is if it's worthwhile we'll take a look at what is the likelihood of that patent being realized Mm. and if it seems to be a pretty clear path to getting a patent, then we check that box off. So you, you mentioned that, that some of the criteria you're looking for, you're looking for a certain level of investment and commitment and maybe seriousness, gravitas, whatever you want to call it. You're looking for an idea that either has been patented or is patentable in a useful way. That's right. And then beyond that, what we'll do is build out... what we believe to be a development plan or a pathway. So is this something that will build towards a product? Is this something that folks will buy? Is this something that doctors will prescribe? And that's critically important. So how do you figure that out? I mean, that's kind of the the old, as they say, $64,000 question, right? Oh, it certainly is. And believe me, I do not figure that out. I'm very fortunate to have a lot of brilliant folks around me that have been in industry and have been successful bio entrepreneurs who know the space incredibly well. So, you know, at, at all points in this process, there is risk. And essentially what we are trying to do is mitigate risk or de-risk as best we possibly can. And of course, most times we're going to get it wrong. That's right. Most times. Oh, you're like a venture capitalist, basically. Yeah. And you know, in their portfolio, they don't have 20 unicorns. They may have 20 companies and only one becomes a unicorn. That's right. And in biotech, the likelihood of success is anywhere between 5 to 10%. And oh, my. Yeah. So with what we are trying to do is, in essence, increase the likelihood of success by establishing a set of criteria in advance, even though it's extremely early. You know, what are those criteria? Do they meet that criteria? And then is it worthwhile us investing, building a company, and moving it forward? Wow. 
so you've touched on a number of points that I kind of want to go back and make sure we finish talking about. We started to talk about some of the obstacles and some of the challenges, and I think that's a good segue into the comment you just made about the chances of failure being high. What are some of the kinds of things, some of the obstacles, some of the hurdles, some of the things that end up causing a lot of these companies to kind of fall by the wayside? Well, the reality is this. Let's say, for example, it's the possibility of a new drug. At some point in time in the development of that new drug, uh, you will conduct research in animals. So as the saying goes, uh, there's been any number of mice that have been cured of cancer. Um, so not all that we see in mice translates into humans. But let's say, for example, that you conduct successful studies in mice, and then you move to larger animals could be swine, it could be dogs, monkeys. Um, could be monkeys, correct. But ultimately, at some point in time, we have to get it into humans. And so... Because if it doesn't work on a person, it's pretty much yeah. interesting, but unless, unless we're you know trying to cure cancer in animals, that's right. I mean, so that's where the failure generally comes. It's, it's proving efficacy in humans. So as we go along through the development process, you know, mice, dog, monkey, whatever whatever we get to, and all of that research validates our hypothesis, we then go into humans and it starts with safety. Is the drug safe? So that's a huge obstacle. Meaning it's, meaning the, the It doesn't uh, the, kill you. Yeah, the cure isn't worse than the disease. That's right. So if we get beyond that, then we get into efficacy. Meaning, does it do what we claim it does? And this, of course, is where it gets incredibly expensive. Could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Why is that so expensive? For a few reasons. One, we're dealing with humans. So we need to actually find the humans that would qualify for this particular study. Number I just got in the mail something that says there's some big stem cell study that's alternatives to joint replacements. So oh, if you have arthritis in your joint, you should call it. So, so that, that's kind of how they that's find it. people? And so that cost, very small cost, relatively speaking, of sending out that mailer to you to try to get you to react to that. And then secondly, let's say you do actually react and you volunteer for this. All of that research needs to be moderated by other humans. So now you're talking about on a per patient basis, it could be ten to $20,000 per patient. Wow. And as soon as you get into a study that's in the thousands of patients, now you're talking about a thousand patients at $10,000 each, now you're into the millions of dollars. Wow. Yeah, yeah. it's not just a $5 Starbucks gift card. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. So, and, and we see this all the time is that at every step of the process, the original hypothesis continues to be validated, and then it gets into this very large human clinical trial the right. study in humans, and for whatever reason, uh, and mostly because the human body is extremely complex, more often than not, the drug 
fails. Interesting. Yeah. And you still had to incur all the expense, though, of gearing up the clinical study. And I know from my background, that involves lawyers and regulatory experts and people who have to prepare all the appropriate regulatory submissions and get the proper consents and waivers from patients who are in the clinical studies. It's a it's a big machine, I think. It's a huge machine. And you're also uh, dealing with the FDA. It's a very large federal government organization. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the obstacles are tremendous, but you have to think about what's the possible outcome. Well, if somebody has to do it or the human race has lost out on a potentially astounding discovery. That's right. And that's actually... The biggest driver for me is, and the thing that keeps me awake at night, is knowing that there are, again, any number of brilliant scientists in the very, very early, early discovery stage of something that could eventually save millions of lives. But the reality is most of those discoveries will not get out of the university without some sort of help. And so that is, in essence, my biggest driver. So even if we fail seven, eight, nine times out of ten, it's that tenth one that succeeds that could and will impact the lives of millions of people. That's the driver. That's what we're shooting for. You've alerted a couple of times to team members, teams of people that you put together to help support the companies that you create around these ideas, a team of people that helps you vet some of the potential concepts and de-risk them. Talk a little bit about who those team members are and how you found them and the role they play. Our team is critically, critically important. And what comes into play here is our actual proximity. So we're very fortunate, and this goes back to why Smart Health was even created, is we are proximal to the largest biotech cluster in the Midwest. So what does that mean? That means that right around us, within a 15, 20-minute drive, we have literally tens of thousands of people that are in industry whether it's drug, diagnostic, or med device. And because of that pool of people, we are able to attract the right kinds of people that, number one, share our passion to solve this problem, but number two, have the expertise and the experience to go along with it. Over the past few years, what we've done is we've built up something we call the ops team. I saw that on your website. And the resumes of the people listed are quite impressive. But I was curious how you came to team up with these people. Well, it's, I would say, mostly because I have a personal philosophy. And it's something that I do each and every day. Every day, I meet with somebody that I've never met with before that I believe is very interesting and probably interested in what it is we're doing. And if I do that each and every day over the course of time, you start to build a rather large community. And within that community are the people that end up on our ops team, by the way, which is short for operations. Okay. So that's, that's how we've done it. Are these the people then that become the chief medical officer, chief commercialization officer, the people that 
fit into the roles that surround the idea creator? Yes. Okay. So these are people that, and I, to, to generally profile these folks, they've been in industry or bio-entrepreneur on average over 30 years. These are people that have said that I would like to be on a startup as CEO, as CSO, CMO, board member, advisor, or I would like to participate in Smart Health. I want to help grow this community. I want to foster successful biotech startup companies. And in, in doing that, today we have, I think it's 106 people that are on our team, the ops team, again, that have raised their hand and said, yes, I so want to be on a startup. are these all volunteers or is there some financial model? Being on a startup, particularly if it's successful, it can be extremely time intensive. So you can spend more time with your coworkers at a startup business than you do with your, your own family and, and circle of friends. That's right. Yes, so these folks are generally volunteers, but essentially their potential financial reward is related to the startups that we create. For each person that joins a startup, and that could be, again, CEO or board member or what have you, they will earn equity in that startup. And if that startup eventually gets acquired, then there will be a significant financial reward for anyone who's on that on that team. So when we build, initially build the startup, we're starting with 100% equity in that startup. And we then divide that equity across the CEO, the CSO, the board members. The original idea creator, obviously. Uh, yeah, and the original idea creator. and Do the and universities ever want to take an equity stake too? Or um, they, mostly just a royalty. They do on occasion. We actually sort of lobby against that. <laughs> and, and the reason being is that it can get messy in a cap table as time goes on when eventually big money and big investors come along and University of Illinois is positioned in that cap table. You're right. I mean, most universities would prefer to get royalties. And royalties actually can come along without the new drug or diagnostic or med device actually being commercialized. Mm, so that's what, interesting. Yeah, so what can happen at various inflection points, meaning a large investment, a large clinical trial, that the university would receive some sort of royalty along the way. But ultimately, the largest royalty would come if something is actually commercialized. Let's talk a little bit about some of the companies, pick a couple that are interesting that are in your activator today. Yeah, would love to do that. There's one in particular that we're close to creating. So I think this is a good use case or case study. And the technology originates out of the University of Illinois in Champaign. Great and school. Yes, thank you. Our mutual. Yes. Our mutual alma Yes. And so this is this is one of those potential new drugs that can have a very clear and significant impact. The indication for this potential new drug is glioblastoma. 
Glioblastoma is a horrible, horrible brain disease that once it is diagnosed, typically you've got about a year to live. No wonder it sounds so horrible. It it is is horrible. And basically the standard of care today, there's, there's one drug, and this one drug basically extends life by two months. That's it, two months. So what this brilliant scientist at University of Illinois has done has taken that basic compound and and his background is in chemistry, basically creating a new compound which will cross the blood-brain barrier, which oftentimes is a huge obstacle in anything that deals with the brain. Based upon the research that, that has been done to date, this is extremely promising and has the likelihood of doubling, tripling, quadrupling uh, life expectancy after it's been diagnosed. So certainly not curing, but extending life. So this is something that pretty quickly could have a dramatic impact on lots of people. Wow. That's exciting to work for yeah. and with a company that's working on something like that. Yep. Uh, Another example, and this gets into a medical device, a device, this deals with glaucoma. So there's millions of folks that suffer from glaucoma in the United States. And essentially what this is, is a contact, so like a contact you would Mm -hmm. put on your eye, that through this technology basically adjusts pressure onto the eye and doesn't cure glaucoma, but solves the problems that Correct. you have. Correct. Correct yeah. for the, the vision change. That's right. That's right. That's really cool. Yeah, it's super, super cool. Wow. And we're actually uh, going through a human trial right now, which is incredible. And the results thus far seem very promising. Wow. Yeah. How exciting and inspiring. Yeah. So you're basically an entrepreneur yourself though i mean you're you were a serial entrepreneur it looks like from looking at your linkedin profile you've you've been more or less a serial entrepreneur for a long time and this is yet another entrepreneurial venture for you right what are some of the biggest challenges you faced with trying to set all of this up and make it operational as a platform Some of the biggest challenges is, and I I have a very strong tendency to look at things through a startup lens, given my background that you just described. But as soon as you start to bring in more and more people, it becomes more and more challenging to sort of adhere to looking at things through a startup lens. So I'll give you a a great example. And this, this comes from my experience as an entrepreneur and working with hundreds of entrepreneurs is that, and this is you know one of the biggest challenges of all, is focus. So I know personally that it's easy to get distracted. It's well, easy. Well, we're all, we're all good at certain things and not good at others. So it's a lot more fun to do the things that you're good at or that you enjoy. That's right. And so as you start to grow a team, it becomes critically important to stay focused. So what is the problem that we're trying to solve and how are we solving that? 
the second biggest challenge is getting people generally to accept failure. We will fail on a day. We fail on a daily basis. And I don't mean fail as an organization in our, our long-term goal, but I mean small steps along the way. And so there generally needs to be an acceptance of making mistakes. And in fact, embrace mistakes, embrace failure. And the wow, best. Th- I think we should. Yeah. I could do a whole show talking about that because that's, that's kind of one of those wow moments, I think. And, and it's one of those things, too, that unless you've been an entrepreneur, very challenging to instill that into others, the acceptance of. Because you can imagine if you work at a big company for you know, 30, 35 years, failure is not accepted right. generally. You get fired. Right. Whereas in the startup world, you actually embrace failure you almost hope to failure because out of that failure, you'll learn what it is you need to do. You know, I, I once saw an article, I think, in the Chicago Tribune talking about why the Midwest is particularly difficult and challenging uh, as a place to foster entrepreneurship versus Silicon Valley. I, I don't remember who was quoted, but basically in the Midwest, we've grown up most of us with this idea of being self-reliant and work hard and if you work hard you'll get to the next level and then the next level and you don't want to talk about failure whereas in Silicon Valley people at cocktail parties brag about some of their failures and some of them being quite colossal do you think there's something to that I do and it's cultural and you're right I mean hard work and I know this might bother some folks, doesn't necessarily translate to success. You can work hard, but if you're not accepting of failure or the ability to iterate or the ability to change, then you're less likely to be a huge success. But I will tell you a couple things. So in Silicon Valley, historically, and I don't know if you're familiar with the roots of Silicon Valley, but it really goes back to pre-World War II, and Stanford actually, um, you know, had long been known for engineers, and there was this need for engineers sort of building up to World War II, and they created this entrepreneurship program for engineers, and that entrepreneurship program, along with World War II, basically fueled or catalyzed the creation of this entrepreneurial spirit based in engineering. So out of that, you got the Hewlett's and the Packard's of the world. And because of that, now you've got these huge entities where entrepreneurship is built into the culture. Yeah. If you go to Silicon Valley and you go anywhere and you meet somebody who works at Google or Apple or what have you, each and every one of them have their day job and each and every one of them are thinking about a startup. Yeah, whereas here, you know, people, you tell people you want to start up a business, a lot of them are like, why don't you just get a job? How are you going to pay for anything? What do you, are you, have you lost your marbles? Well, I think in some sense you have to be a little bit crazy. But going back to Silicon Valley, even in large companies, it's promoted. So if you go to Google, they would fully, Google will fully embrace 
you working on a startup. Whereas that is pretty different than yeah. here. I don't. I yeah. don't know. Well, we're almost out of time. Before we wrap up, where do you see Smart Health Activator being in five years? I mean, what, what does success look like for the Smart Health Activator and for the companies that are in your portfolio? Where I see us in five years very clearly is, and we're at this point right now where we're looking to scale. So we would like to create five to ten companies a year. And we would like to have those companies based right here in Chicago. And we would like those companies, we would like Chicago Land to become an innovation hub in biotechnology. So if you use the analogy of the classic hub and spoke model, we are the hub and the spokes go out to 35 universities in the Midwest. So if we build and create these new entities that inevitably will flourish, we're building up this entire community of innovation and startup success in Chicago. So that's where I see us in, in five years, and, and we're going to do it. That is very inspirational. You truly are making a difference. Tom, thanks so much for being with us today. It was really great to learn more about you and about the Smart Health Activator. If people are interested in being part of the team, how would they best reach you? The best thing to do, and I would appreciate anybody reaching out to me that has an interest, is simply email me, and it's Tom at Smart Health Activator. I know that's kind of a mouthful, but Tom at SmartHealthActivator.com. I promise you I will respond. Thank you again for being on our show today. It was great having you. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Next week is Thanksgiving, so there's no show. But the week after that, on Saturday, our studio guest will be Kevin Drast. He's the owner and founder of a company called Miller Area Heating and Cooling. And he's going to share his story of how he built his business, some of the challenges he's faced, and how he overcame them. So don't miss it. And until then, folks, happy entrepreneuring. Mm-hmm.